next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. And uh, usually we'd say hello to our co-host, Gene, but he's out doing stuff in the field. So I think we'll launch right in and uh, bring on our guest, Mr. Joel Eiffel, who is the founder of Farcast. And before we even get this thing rolling, let me just say, first of all, hi, Joel, how's it going? Oh, hey, Patrick, I am doing well. How are you doing today? Doing good. Another beautiful day in the neighborhood, as it were. <laughs> but, um, all right, well, why don't you, well, before you even do that, let's, let's, uh, I know there's been a, a name change, so when we, we're going to talk about, um, you know, airborne delivery of supplies and things like that. Actually, maybe, why don't, why don't you give us a short bio of how you got into this? Also, actually, I think you should give us the website so people can go there and, and kind of see what we're talking about. We're not really talking about drones, so to speak. We're, we're talking about something a little bit different. Yeah. Um, our website would be uh, www.gofarcast.com, and that's F-A-R-C-A-S-T. Dot com. Um, and uh, just, yeah, by way of introduction, I'm, I'm Joel Eiffel. I'm the founder of what used to be Dash Systems. Uh, we changed our name several months ago uh, to Farcast. Turns out Dash is a very crowded word from a trademark perspective. Yes. That happens. <laughs> All right. I went over there. And so people, you know, you should probably go over there and take a look at this because I think it's going to make more sense to you. And I'm, I'm addressing the listener because I'm sure you've been to the website once or twice. Well, Joel. It makes, <laughs> it makes sense to me, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, before we launch into this, so, I mean, this is this, uh, this system. You basically, what you're doing is you are delivering uh, stuff from the air. But um, so, you, you know, you talked about how uh, the, just went through a name change and it was Dash Systems and we did have you on before and we talked a little bit about what you're doing and today I want to talk more about the practical application which we'll go into but uh, let, let's talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about your background and how you got into let's say the, the uh, business or world of delivering things by air yeah so I came from an engineering background. I have a degree in welding engineering, and I joke it's the most relevant degree and completely irrelevant to what I do. Uh, you know, welding uh, doesn't teach you anything about uh, things uh, coming out of the sky. But what it did here, I graduated in uh, 2009. Uh, I was able to step through just about any industry because they all have welds in it. So first career, I was working at Aerojet. I was working on precision-guided munitions, uh, manufacturing those. So we were making Stinger missiles, uh, ATAC, and guided multiple-launch rocket systems. Um, so I just got an appreciation of that from an airspace standpoint, um, from a manufacturing standpoint. I went and worked at a national lab with a top-secret clearance. I was working on uh, uh, nuclear reactors uh, for uh, Better Atomic Power Laboratory for uh, the U.S. Navy. Of course, everything there is uh, highly classified, but great environment, learned so much. Um, came back out 
you know, worked at, just say, all over. I was in wet design, doing uh, fountains, you know, largest fountain in the world, fountain in Bellagio, Dubai fountain, um, back in aerospace. And in 2017, uh, actually 2016, I started working nights and weekends, 2017, uh, went full-time on what would become Dash and now Farcast. All right. And... Um... So you did, you, did, you know, you did have because uh, this delivery system. There's a difference, and anybody that's ever done, let's say, I don't know, I, I, I was a, a rocket modeler, and uh, you know, I will say that technology really changed the way things descend with parachutes, um, and the difference yeah. between your system and a system of like just dropping. Uh, supplies or packages with a parachute. You haven't done that. Yeah. Stuff that's called wind. And, uh, <laughs> Never heard of wind, it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, wind can blow you uh, far off target, especially yeah. uh, altitudes, altitude density. Uh, there, there's a lot of factors. I think it's kind of funny. Most people that are, um, let's say, I don't want to, I'm looking for the right word because I'm not trying to disparage anyone. But I, you know, if you haven't really understand how the the, the atmosphere works, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of energy there, is what I like to say. Yeah. You, you, you put yeah. something kind of heavy on a parachute and the wind can grab it and move it around. Yeah. And put it uh, far away from the place you want to. But you uh, came up with a solution for this. And and was this um I mean is this something that you looked at uh, let's say through the lens of you know the the missile world, or is it yeah, just yeah? Uh, you know, go ahead. That was a a big inspiration. So so yeah, and, and to break down that challenge for you, you know, uh, airdrop one hundred and one. You're trying to get something from a moving aircraft in the sky at some altitude to a point on the ground, preferably the point you to. Uh, you know, think a helipad, small field, etc. So, uh, and the big challenge there is you don't want it to land at, at free fall speeds or else you're delivering, you know, uh, piles of mush there, uh, broken parts. Uh, so you need to decelerate it. Uh, the most obvious deceleration method is a parachute. Um, there's some other ones uh, that come to mind or powered flight, you know, essentially dropping a drone or dropping an airplane or dropping a glider. Uh, but they have their own challenges. So, so parachutes are, I say, de facto the most common method. Um, to your point in this problem, uh, kind of have uh, two big ones. First, can you know? First, can you accurately predict what something will do, you know, at all altitudes through its uh, its flight? And then, B, you know, can you build enough reliability that it does what you predict it does? You know, will the parachute deploy at the right time, et cetera? Um, I was inspired very much so from my work at Airjet. You know, working on all these precision guide munitions, all these smart bombs. You know, the program directors would come down. And they would brag and the customers, hey, look at this, you know, we can hit a person on a moving speeder bike or a motorbike. We can go through a specific window in a building. Um, you know, we can do this uh, from, you know, an aircraft going over Mach 1 while being shot at. Uh, and so, you know, once they kind of appear on that hood and then 2017 or so, the drone conversation, the drone uh, industry was really starting to flourish. Uh, and, you know, truthfully, a lot of these, uh, you know, modern flight controllers, like a Pixhawk or flight controller, has more intelligence and sensors and compute than, you know, I say a Cold War or, you know, first Gulf War uh, precision guided munition. Uh, they were actually much more simple than I think a lot of people uh, would let on. Of course, there's modern ones that are more complex. 
But, um, you know, really put it together and said, essentially, can you re-engineer a smart bomb for a peaceful purpose uh, and take a lot of that precedent and learning um, from the munitions world of how do you launch something accurately from an aircraft? All right. Well, that's interesting you say all of that because there's, there's a lot to uh, – there's a lot going on there. Um, it is – you know, it's, I'm not going to – Say it's easy to put a missile through the window, and like even in the scenario that you describe, you know, from the aircraft traveling at Mach one, blah blah blah. There's a lot of math in there. Um, yeah, but you you are correct, and it's interesting that you say that because in the early days of the drone world, most of the stuff that's how they controlled it, and they thought of it. This is uh, you know cruise missile technology, and we can't let it get out which was kind of funny because I'm like, well, that genie's a far out of bottle and everybody's doing it and you don't really need to be a big DOD contractor to do that. No, you're crazy. That, that, that won't happen. It's very sophisticated. And uh, yeah. a lot of meetings, they tried to laugh me out of there that the Chinese or Iranians or anyone else would be able to, Turkey, Korea, whatever, would be able to, you know, mimic this technology. But anyway, I've been laughed at many times. I get used to it. Anyway, so, um, you know, that is another question, too, and I'm, I'm thinking about. But so as we go through this, I noticed you got these uh, fins on there. You have these paddles, and it looks to me from the, the uh, video that they have, um, they are articulated. You can move them around. And it, it, so it's basically... That magic, since there's like programming and math in here that, uh, and I'm, I'm sure positioning that tells this package where it's at, and you've got the uh, target programmed where you would like the, the, uh, sure. the goods and services to, to, to meet the earth. Or actually, I yeah. see a picture here of you, uh, it looks like the airborne too. Or I mean, I'm seaborne too. So wherever. Yeah. On the and, 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 to give a quick overview of the technology here with some level of detail, I'll try not to, to bore the non-engineers. Um, basically, three main components of doing an airdrop, you know, reliably and repeatedly. Um, first, we have a software component, and this is that college-level math. We have a, a great PhD working for us of, you know, including wind resistance uh, and, and uh, about, you know, 10, 20 factors you're tracking. You know, can you predict what something will do? Uh, I mean, basically, can you do a forward uh, ballistic com computation to say, if I launch it right now, where will it land, and is that in the right place? That software does all that fancy math in the background, um, and it provides guidance to the pilot saying, okay, you have to fly to this point in space on this course. Uh, if you do it, all the conditions are met. The light turned green, which authorizes the launch. Uh, the ballistic computation is about 80% of the problem. Um, you know, without throwing stones, the nature of the airdrop industry, there wasn't a lot of new technology, so a lot of it was kind of put in the, in the past here where you're punching in GPS coordinates, um, you know, on a touchpad by hand, um, and then, you know, you as a load master pilot or county accountant, you know, one potato, two potato, I think I'm overhead, and you hit a button. So, you know, really bringing that just into, I say, the 21st century with modern technology and UI, that's about half of the problem there. Um, then the other major component is the thing you are dropping. So we call them pods, our, uh, I say our internally built ones. And uh, if you see on the website in their pictures, it is essentially 80 or so percent of it is a cargo container. 
that carries things in it. It is a box. Uh, we buy them from Uline here. I'm giving away all the things. It is a box. Um, there you go. On, on the back of that, we're strapping a guidance system, a tail kit, we call it. Um, it has four fins and a cruciform pattern. You know, it turns out uh, bombs and missiles kind of look like they do for a very good reason. Uh, so we're just taking a lot of that aerodynamic uh, lessons there. Uh, it has on board a flight controller uh, and a parachute and GPS. It can guide itself down. You have two versions. Either it's, it's just passively flying and monitoring its conditions, or if you want more accuracy, you can have those fins articulate uh, and essentially guide it in. And uh, then when it senses the ground at the right altitude, it pulls its parachute. It's only under full canopy of its parachute for a few seconds you know, three to five or so seconds. And by doing that, the wind component, um, you know, it's drastically reduced in terms of, you know, the complexity of trying to predict the wind at the surface right. and also trying to predict how it affects the parachute. Uh, trust me here, people, you know, it's, it sounds like an easy problem. Uh, people have been trying to tackle this since the uh, space race days because they wanted to predict where parachutes would land for, for the shuttles or excuse me, for, for the Apollo program, it, it's not an easy task and no one's ever solved that. You know, you just can't, you can't predict what the wind's going to do two minutes in the future, you know, from 5,000 feet to the ground. Uh, or yeah. if you can, please tell me how. I will pay you in, uh, indefinite money for that information. Yeah, I wish I could, um, but I can't. That is, a, um, <laughs> that is a difficult one. And the wind, you know, to the other, you know some of the guests that I've had on, on this podcast, you know, Noah, whatever else, and the energy and the atmosphere and the transfer of energy off of the face of the earth or the ocean, it's, it's really amazing what's going on out there, but you are correct, and that was, you know, one of the things, too, I don't want to get too far off, but even with Loon, I don't know if you remember the Loon project that uh, mm -hmm. Google was building, and they were going to try and do internet off of the weather balloons, and I remember them talking to them early on, and it's like, you know, it, very hard to predict, you know, where that thing is going to be and the different temperatures and, you know, you, you, if you yeah. vent them or what, you know. So there, there's all these factors that you're trying to put in there, but very hard to put something like that where you want it in the atmosphere. And uh, the parachute question is the same thing. And then go back to the rockets. Now they have, you know, altimeters you can put in the high-power rockets. And nobody really wanted to do high-power rocketry because you're cheating out the way up there. And uh, more than likely, you'd never see a rocket again. So that's uh, one of the issues. So you're uh, – I, I like the cargo container thing uh, from you, line. I'm going to order some of those. I'll be looking for those in the next order of tape and packing peanuts to uh, see what you're using. But um, – so this whole system, do you, uh, do you usually go back and get it, or is it something that you design that really um, – because I want to get into the natural disaster thing, but is it something that you, you go back and you try and collect and reuse, or is it just like, look, the infrastructure is totaled and uh, you've designed this thing to, to be at a price point where that's the, the cost of delivering humanitarian aid? Yeah. Um, great question. So, so the system is reusable. Um, you know, if you want to achieve, you know, the most economic efficiency, uh, it's best if you can reuse them. But to your point, you know, having been in multiple hurricanes, 
Um, if it's truly, you know, say that big of an impact, you know, getting back the hardware is not the primary concern. Um, and if we do cost comparison and really think of what you're aiming against, which at times up today is helicopters, uh, you can still see price improvement. Um, so I say it really just uh, varies from the customer and use case. Um, I would say our business is not just disaster focused. In fact, we, we think the prime opportunity is in middle mile air cargo. And in that context, really what you're saying is, hey, the pallet's landing, you know, at the airport or at the warehouse. It's just the airplane didn't land uh, with the pallet. And so in that yeah. case, uh, you're going to use a system and you're going to inject it back into the supply chain just like you do with a pallet today, you know. You drop it out there the factory, you stack them up, you send them back. Right. Well, that makes sense. Uh, in the disaster context, and I do want to talk about that because you guys did some work not too long ago here. Um, but for, for people to understand, it's like, you know, if you, you go into a disaster relief area and every person that's like brought into that, if you're on the ground, um, you know, taxes, let's say limited resources. You know, where's that, that person yeah. got to eat? They have to have water. Uh, they have to be able to travel. You know, where are they going to sleep? But, uh, you know, there's, there's all these things. And then other causes of nature, whatever else that you have to deal with when you get into these places. And that's taxing a system that's already, uh, let's say, broken. So your system, you're just going to come in and you are going to deliver whatever is needed. And, you know, I guess we might as well launch into that. Um, so recently we did some work and, and you guys uh, delivered some uh, relief. Uh, so maybe we, we could kind of, well, yeah, I, I know, you know, the, the other stuff is exciting too, but for, for, for just for the listener to understand, because you guys, there's the hurricanes, um, people see the devastation on TV, uh, and then kind of it just goes away, you know, be, oh, is devastated and there's just all this destruction and blah 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 and it's in the news cycle for you know a couple of days and then people kind of forget maybe you could yeah. kind of t- walk us through the mechanics of you know say disaster relief in the hurricane sense yeah yeah so um and i just want to follow up on your previous point you know to your point about being on the ground in a hurricane you know my rule number one is you don't ever want to become a victim or end up tying mm-hmm. up resources you know, if you're there to help and do relief work, you know, uh, you have to eat, but, you know, you don't want to be eating the supplies that you're trying to give away uh, as a work. Um, so, uh, or, you know, tying up rescue boats to come get you as well. So that's kind of mm-hmm. rule number one. Um, but, uh, yeah, kind of looking at it here. So, you know, I've been now in hurricane since Hurricane uh, Maria in Puerto Rico five years ago, uh, which to date has been the, the worst one I've seen. Um but, you know, day after a hurricane comes through or other large natural disaster flooding, uh, what you have is, uh, A, first of all, a lack of information. So you know an area has been affected, but day or two after, you don't know how much. And then, you know, all infrastructure is damaged or destroyed. You know, roads are underwater or not passable. Bridges are washed out. Power lines are down. Uh, usually with that, you know, 4G, 5G, all, you know, cell infrastructure is damaged uh, or the fiber lines to it, you know, or the substations flooded. You know, and, and, and you have an area that, you know, is in relief uh, or excuse me, is in the disaster zone and, and needs help. There's this critical about four or five day period right after. That's when you start running out of food and water first. Um, other things, you know, over-counter medicine, things that start becoming life critical. And 
And, you know, fair weather, it doesn't seem like an issue, but uh, believe me, if you lose, you lose your house and you're sitting in a tropical condition with, without clean water for three or four days, even though it's nice weather, you're going to start uh, becoming, you know, victim of tropical diseases, uh, things that are easily solvable if you have, say, kind of modern infrastructure uh, and medical access. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so to give an example here, just recently, um, a few weeks ago, we were in, in Puerto Rico again uh, for Hurricane Fiona. Uh, the hurricane come over um, and mostly affected the, the western and southern side of the island. Uh, I, as I was told, um, the, the, it luckily wasn't as big of an impact as Hurricane Maria, uh, but the areas that did hit were hit harder. Uh, the amount of uh, uh, water that was downpoured, ironically, or say sadly, knocked out some bridges that were put in after Hurricane Maria that got washed out during Hurricane Maria. So instantly you have these areas uh, without power uh, and without any, you know, say community or excuse me, any, you know, uh, passable way to the outside world. Um, what we did here, we worked in partnership with the United Cajun Navy, um, a very large search and rescue nonprofit based out of Louisiana. Um, we worked with them. We worked with Vivo Blue. Um, a company that makes water filtration systems, uh, and our goal was to get some of these donated water filters into areas uh, that still didn't uh, have a lot of supplies, and clean drinking water uh, was among them. Also, they had no power, so pumps, et cetera, uh, were working or only working on diesel generators. There was also a diesel source at the time. Yeah, and I even went over there and uh, looked at their website, the Vivo Blue, uh, it, it, it's, you know, I, it, one, we talked a little bit about the energy that comes out of the uh, ocean and into the sky. And this contest, we did talk about hurricanes and how all that uh, energy comes out of the ocean. And to see that devastation again, you know, most of us, you're walking around, uh, you know, you go outside, and you're like, God, oh, it's really nice out here. There's a little breeze. You don't realize uh, the energy. That's that's in there, um, and, yeah. and other thing that he's talking about with clean water. It's like okay, so you know, in, in uh, our whole civilized world, we take a lot of things for granted. You know, walking over to the tap, yeah. you know, turning on the tap and getting uh, clean water out of there. Um, yeah, you can't last too long without water, and even like in a tropical environment, you know. It's human, you're sweating, uh, you're going to dehydrate. You need water. And uh, people don't really, I think they take that for granted. They also take the food thing for granted, you know. Uh, oh, geez, I'm hungry. I'll go get a bag of Fritos. Uh, when, when there's all that devastation, there's really nothing to eat. It, the situation becomes real, real quick. So the yeah. air delivery, um, you know, as opposed to, say, trucks or whatever, trees are down, Power lines are down, uh, roads are washed out, bridges are washed out, all the rest of that. And that's all the something that you would have to navigate, like to bring something heavy, like trucking in pallets of water. So you're, you're, you're kind of uh, cutting out that logistical nightmare and being able to just, here you go, here's some uh, water filtration, and basic needs are met. Is that um, is that usually? I mean, is it is it uh, water first, food, uh, medical supplies, yeah. or what? What's, I will what's say, the goal? you know, 
we we are a at, at the really root of it we are an air cargo company air cargo business you know we're providing an empty box what people put into it um you know it just depends based on their need uh their need structure i'll say the most common are water and water filtration because that's you know one of the most immediate ones uh food you know durable supplies uh over-the-counter medicine you know feminine products uh one we haven't gotten to too much then is uh, building materials, tents, roofing, tarps. Because again, exposure, you know, even, you know, there's a difference between uh, having a nice vacation on the beach and, and being on the beach without any roof and getting rained on for five days in a row. Um, you know, uh, so, so things like that are, are what become the primary needs. Um, and uh, yeah, generally focused, of course, on time sensitivity. And, and really also I'll couch it as, if you look at what we're doing, what we're offering is a delivery lane that's very, very hard to disrupt because generally speaking, we can always fly overhead. You know, we can't fly in the middle of a supercell or a storm, but the day after we can fly. Uh, so we're providing a more reliable delivery method that also is just faster. Um, you know, we can get from Miami to Puerto Rico within a few hours and from Miami to Puerto Rico to the town uh, within 20 minutes more. Uh, and that's whether there's a road or a bridge there uh, or not. It, it's all pretty much flat on delivery time, which is just the distance from the airport you take off. Right. Well, and I don't want to, uh, you know, just talk about disasters. But, I, like, you know, it's, it's uh, again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a behind the scenes is which I, what I like to do on the podcast. Because, you know, people see the face of it on the news or whatever. Well, what happens after... You know, some of the uh, what you described, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I'm on the beach, you know, or whatever. Well, without the basic necessities of life, that that becomes uh, that paradise becomes something else. But I don't, you know, I don't want to get uh, too far into the weeds. I just wanted to show, you know, kind of talk about that and show people behind the scenes how people get help and whatever else, which is which is great. And then the other thing that's really nice about your system is instead of I don't. I don't Maybe, maybe you could discuss that real quick because I want to. I do want to move into the business use case of this, but I, I, you know, one thing that I think that we need. We did talk about how parachutes and it's hard to predict or whatever, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have probably studied this, or I would assume that you've studied this. So you know, if I'm just and I look at the, I'm looking at the white or the uh, website again, and you know, seven packages out of a plane with just a parachute. Uh, say versus with your system. I mean, is there? Have you guys like what the range is of uh, the young guy, the, the the parachute box, and then your yeah, box, what, what what's the uh, yeah. what are we talking about here as far as accuracy? <laughs> yeah, um, and I'll talk in generalities because you, you start talking specific numbers. You know, uh, you're you know you're you're caveating. You're talking about hey for this particular sure. flight, um, but in, in general here. You know, uh, parachute systems, you know, kind of fall into guided and unguided. The vast majority, you know, we think of World Food Program, we think of the U.S. military, the vast majority is unguided systems. So, you know, system is kicked out or pulled out of the airplane, parachute inflates, and then it's kind of going uh, where the winds take it that day. Um, in that context, the only way to get more accurate is to fly lower and lower. Um, you know, fire service, things like that, will fly 300 feet above the ground. And that way, you know, essentially it's only under parachute for, you know, five, 10 seconds. The wind doesn't have a lot of time. You can get pretty accurate doing that and kudos to the people who do it. But for safety reasons, 
for legal reasons, you know, just down to noise, flying at 300 feet, you know, one and a half, two wingspans above the ground is not a great place to be. Um, and, uh, and, and to bring up an example, in a place like Puerto Rico, we were delivering to Juncos. It's in the mountains. Uh, you know, we're actually in a kind of a small valley between mountains. We wouldn't have been able to fly that low safely. It wouldn't have been possible. Um, mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I'm bringing that up. So, what our system is doing by hey, having better prediction of where we need to be, better guidance to where we need to be, we can get to a, a smaller point in space, and that point in space is you know much closer to the ideal point in space, um, and it lets us step up in altitude here from a few hundred feet to about 1,500, 2,000 feet, uh, and get roughly the same accuracy or better. Again, hard to make direct comparisons because it's so. Uh, System to system and you know kind of day to day, but right now where we're at is you know landing within you know being able to repeatedly land within you know a soccer field, a football field size area, you know 100 meters, and having the confidence to do that and know, hey, you know there's a house here, you know there's something here, you know I can't harm that, um, and having that confidence, I think those have been the two big ingredients. You know, a what's your accuracy, and then b how reliable are you? Uh, again, a lot of hit traditional parachute systems, they struggled on reliability. So, you know, in the military, if, you know, they lose one out of 20 Humvees, they're okay with that. In the civilian world, if, you know, one out of 20 pallets, we destroy, that's just unacceptable, or damage, that's just unacceptable, uh, which is why you, you haven't seen airdrop systems as much as I would have liked uh, in the past, because doing it reliably and accurately has been challenging. Right. Well, <clears throat> You know, what you just said in the context of, let's say, disaster relief, not only just business. You know, it's nice to be able to lose a Humvee, but they're priced. You know, <laughs> I can personally afford yeah. that. <clears throat> so, um, but, but even in the case, uh, we've talked, okay, so safety is number one. You know, again, we talked about that. You, know, you don't want to become a strain on finite resources. So, you know, we, we don't want any mishaps. That's number one. So that is your system allowed. So we can get a little higher and we can do this. But then also, uh, you know, like you said, putting it down reliably, uh, repeatably in a small area, again, in a disaster, especially something that's, uh, you know, close to the ocean. Pilots could go into the ocean. They could go into areas where there's down power lines or, you know, water that's contaminated or whatever, and you lose some of those supplies, and that's not where we want to be. So uh, we can see the definite advantage uh, of your system. Say, okay, well, danger zone over here, danger zone over here. We're going to put it right in the pickle barrel. People can access it. I mean, that's that's even worse. You know, you, you deliver aid that people can't get to and watch it sink into the ocean or something. It's a, you know, yeah. downer. Yeah. But anyway. And then, so, yeah. And, you, uh, well, go ahead. And, you know, kind of a final party thought here, too. Um, The whole reason for increasing accuracy, too, is you just increase the available areas that you can drop to, um, you know, and that planning side of the process. So, again, using a real example, uh, we were in the Juncos area. Um, The first drop zone we got wasn't usable. There ended up being cars in it. Uh, So we were able to quickly in real time find a local park minutes away, uh, and then, you know, without having been there before, evaluate it, set it up, and go and successfully do um, airdrop into that location. 
Um, and if you need 500, you know, meters or you know, a large field, then you just start struggling to find those places, especially in places that are in jungles or forests and places that are in mountains. So just being able to find, uh, you know, it's easier to find a, a soccer field kind of anywhere in the world uh, than it is to find, you know, a 5,000-foot-long landing strip. Exactly. And that's, uh, you know, the other, uh, let's say, benefit uh, to your system is I don't have to find somewhere to land. Same deal even with the helicopter model. Jungle, trees, mountains, you know, all the rest of that. But it, it, uh, there's a complexity exactly. there. And I got to have people that load it and take it all the rest of that stuff. But anyway, um, let's go back to the model of the uh, losing the Humvee, um, you know, and, and what that would cost. So as you move into the commercial realm, and I want to talk about commercial applications um, for this. And you know, so everything we already talked about, right? So in the, in the humanitarian thing, okay, well, you know, we, we have to factor some of this stuff coming in, and there's all this extenuating circumstances, blah, blah, blah. Not the case for the business application. I ordered 15 Humvees. I want 15 Humvees. So, you know, as, as we move <laughs> overlay this onto business, I, I know that there's been some, so I, I want you to kind of work this in if you can. So I know there's been some changes. I know, you know, uh, when you were Dash, you know, I think you were uh, the CEO and I think you wore a whole bunch of hats for small business and you're trying to get this thing <laughs> off the bed and working seven days a week and, uh, you know, answering all the calls and all the rest of that. So as this has evolved, um, as the applications have, have, have kind of, um, you know, opened up and you're understanding what you can do and markets and things like that, maybe you could kind of go over what some of these business applications are, where the structure of the company is going. I know you got some new people, and there's a lot to unpack there, but we'll, we'll unpack it. We'll go through it. So maybe, uh, I don't know, what, what, how, how would you like sure. to start on that? I'll, I'll start with this, the team side because that, that's a great story here. So, uh, yeah, about a year or so ago, I uh, decided to step out of the CEO seat um, and bring in, uh, I'd say, a new team or help bring in a new team. We got uh, two great guys here. Uh, we got Ben Coleman, who came in as our CEO. He's a former uh, F-18 pilot, so has a lot of, uh, I'd say, you know, hands-on, uh, you know, knowledge with dropping things actually from aircraft, um, you know, before going on and getting his MBA and uh, becoming a consultant. Um, brought him in uh, and uh, also brought in JR, who came in as our COO. He's a former uh, Navy, teal, uh, Navy SEAL sniper, uh, SEAL team guy, um, and also uh, uh, went to business school and became, uh, I say, an investor and banker. And I think between the two of them, you know, really brought on board to, to help with, I say, the commercial aviation that go to market, and they've been doing an excellent job. Uh, great, great guys like working for them. Uh, they're doing all the day to day, and and that frees me up to do uh, what founders do best, um, uh, which is you know dream on big ideas and you know go parachute into to hurricane relief areas uh, to help on the ground. Um, and uh, so with that, you know, you know the broader story because I think the biggest message that I could walk people away is, is you know the application for airdrops are much larger than you think. Um, and I'm going to joke, you're not going to think of them 
because they're not something that's really surfaced to you or say to us as uh, you know consumers. So we get something two days on FedEx or two days, you know, Amazon Prime. We don't think about how it got there. They don't, they don't really the only portion we see is the is the step van driving up and the guy coming out and you know putting it on our doorstep. Uh, we don't see that you know an airplane flew from Los Angeles uh, to Louisville, turned around and flew to Denver and got put on a 208 phone from Denver out to Grand Junction, put on a, a semi, then put on a step van and then put to your door. You know all that's kind of hidden to us. So. So, so looking at it, you know, what is the commercial application? Really what we're saying is, hey, if you, if you know, by landing the package, landing cargo, not the plane, you're decoupling air cargo from airports and from ground infrastructure. Um, and it lets you do a lot of interesting things on increasing time and service. So, you know, uh, all of a sudden, uh, a small farming town that you're flying over, you know, daily between, you know, Los Angeles and San Francisco as addressable as a major metropolitan city because essentially it's very little extra time or cost now to drop to that location. Um, and A, you didn't need an airport and you didn't need the time delay of coming down, landing, taxiing, unloading, refueling, you know, coming and stepping, you know, uh, taxiing, taking off again, stepping back up to altitude. Um, and the way we get a lot of these cost savings or cost improvements is that by avoiding landing cycles, you're avoiding a large component of uh, fuel burn. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. a shorter flight, you get like 30% of your fuel is just on your burn and climb back up to altitude. So keeping that flight profile straight and level, drop to the same airport you're going to land at, turn around, come back home. You just save money on a, uh, on potential energy getting back up to altitude. Uh, and then the other one is we can do a, a lot of interesting stuff on economy of scale. We can take three or four smaller aircraft, you know, Cessna 208 that, um, you know, have a say worse unit economics. We can combine it on one uh, larger flight, a Dash 8, a Cessna 212, uh, therefore, uh, and replace all these there and back flights with one, you know, gram loop. Therefore, we can save about, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50% miles traveled, you know, miles flown for the same amount of, uh, you know, goods delivered. That's, that's another behind the scenes. That, that's one. That's what I love about this uh, program. Yeah, I've been doing it for ten years, and sometimes you know, you're gonna fall out. But it's like you, you really start talking about how the world works behind the scenes, and the logistics thing that you just mentioned. You know, it's funny. Uh, you know, we're all doing it, right? You're waiting for the guy in the step van or the gal with the music blaring to drop the package. And, uh, you know, that, 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 let's say that long tail behind that of how that package got to you. Uh, a, lot, a lot goes into that. So I can see, um, you know, you make some good points about fuel savings and there's maintenance savings and, you know, takeoffs and landings are you know, usually the, the unsafe part of the deal. So if you can maximize all of that, you're ahead of the game. Um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of folks lately about, uh, you know, everybody wants to go electric, which is going to require a lot of minerals. Um, and, uh, you know, you get these calls from people that want to, you know, we're, gonna, we're going to the Arctic to look for cobalt and, you know, other components that are going to be batteries. And we're going to be up there, and we're going to need, and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, operating in the Arctic, I'm not an expert. <laughs> you know, 
there's a lot of weather and all the rest of that stuff, and you know, it's hard to truck in. Are, are you seeing an uptick in, in um, let's say, logistics for areas like that, where you might be delivering yeah. supplies and equipment? And whatnot? I mean, you can't just do that, like, you know, hey, throw it in the back of the truck, drive it out there, that, you know. Yeah. There's two parts of that I want to break down. I think first is the remote side, and then second is, you know, the renewable, the sustainable side. I'll tackle the remote side first. So, so yeah, you know, truly where we shine the best, especially at a smaller scale company, is in remote rural areas, these areas that are already hard to get to. Um, you, know, uh, you know, famously last, you know, the bridge to nowhere um, people don't people don't recall that bridge was connecting the airport to the town, uh, and without it, the only way to get to the airport, which is the only way to town, is to take a boat. Um, that was a famous bridge to nowhere. Um, but really, just that's just an example of you know logistics in places like Alaska is far from easy. Eighty percent of the communities aren't on the road network. Uh, a lot of locations are only serviceable by aircraft for portions of the year. Uh, and, you know, you're not talking 737s, you're talking, you know, a Cessna 208, a little 8-9 passenger aircraft landing on a gravel runway strip at negative 30 with a 30-knot crosswind. Uh, no uh, instrument landing system, you know, no precision approaches. Uh, it's really dangerous flying out there. So, so for a lot of us, you know, our work in Alaska, which has been, i say, one of our, our primary markets here, uh, from from a relationship standpoint and where we're looking to do commercial deliveries is um, taking those same bush flights, but now, hey, great, fly straight and level, fly over the bad weather. Um, you know, we don't have to worry about fog. Alaska is also historically very foggy, uh, the whole Pacific Northwest there. Uh, so when you're fogged in on a gravel runway strip and you haven't gotten anything for, you know, two weeks, uh, you can airdrop into that same landing strip, you know, flying 3,000 feet above the clouds. Uh, and to remove a lot of those challenges. And again, what the customers are interested in is reliability. You know, uh, how they test for weather in Alaska is you fly out and see if you can make the landing. And if you can't, you turn around. And if you do and you, and you, and you make it and you, you know, you don't stick the landing, um, you know, the crash rate ends up being about two and a half times higher in Alaska than it is in the lower 48. Uh, right. Well, uh, it's funny, so, you know. But you say that yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for my, you know, Amazon Prime, and uh, no, uh, I don't think people. Again, you know, we kind of talked about civilization, and you know, going to the tap and getting my glass of water, or, you know, going to the cupboard and getting whatever, you know, food I want, uh, getting up in the morning and taking my prescription so I don't, you know, die or yeah. whatever from, you know, complications, all of that stuff, and the, like you said, the bridge to nowhere, I mean, I, I really mock that and all the rest of that, but it's like when you're you're out in the middle of nowhere and people can't get you the things that you need to live, uh, things get real, real quick. I'll, I'll give you one primary example here. I don't want to take too much time. Uh, you know, this winter, beginning of this year, there was an over three-week service outage in the western Alaska, up to six weeks in some locations. Um, this is out of the Bethel region. If you want to look on a map, there's over 50 communities out of Bethel that are flying only or in the wintertime flying only. Um, and uh, wind weather was so bad, it was, you know, hard to impossible to land in Bethel. And from there, it was definitely, you know, hard to impossible to take off and fly into these areas. 
Uh, it got so bad uh, that people were taking dog sled teams over 100 miles into town to get diesel fuel, which is life critical for your generators in the years, and to pick up food and medicine. You know, if you imagine uh, you, uh, you have any prescription medicine and uh, all of a sudden you hear, you know, you can't get a six-week, you know, a delivery for six weeks, this can uh, quickly become life critical. Um, and and on a, I'd say on a lighter note, uh, you know, worked with some uh, grocery suppliers up in Alaska, and they said, you know, I don't think my customers know what strawberries look like without mold on them. You know, the spoilage rate for fresh produce in Alaska is over 50%, um, and it's because it's just, you know, these undefinite delays, and all of a sudden what should have been de- delivered there on Monday is delivered two weeks later. Right. Now, we'll probably run a little long here, but we, we are uh, on the downside here. But, uh, you know, again, you know, that, that civilization thing, and, you know, we, we think about, you know, what's traveling to us. Um, you know, also another, you know, the danger thing that you talked about or the safety thing and icing, and there, there's so many factors that go into that. And then I'm sure there's the stress on the pilots, you know, that fly out to these yeah. places. Like you said, okay, so it's been six weeks. All right, Bill, you know, we need you to go out there, buddy, and, uh, you know, they're really counting on you. So, you know, you got to make it, and, you know, the stress of the pilot, like, do I try and land in these adverse conditions? Because I know all these people are, you know. Anyway, yeah. uh, you've taken a lot of that out. But, you know, business-wise, yeah. even just in remote areas and other things, you know, people are trying, oh, drone delivery, and I don't want to drive the drone delivery because people, you know, but you know the infrastructure I just I don't see it you know uh, the infrastructure required to deliver three pounds or four pounds just millions of dollars worth of infrastructure uh, for this last mile deal and I can't see how they're delivering potato chips I mean they gotta be losing you know I don't even know how much money to deliver potato chips or burritos or whatever, uh, just not um, economical in, in my mind. So, you know, let's talk about what you can drop. So here you are. I'm up here in uh, Pelican Beach, Alaska, which doesn't really exist that I know of. Maybe there is. There's a, people are mad at me. I'll get the hate mail. Uh, yeah, okay. Hey, uh, you know, we've been out here and we need food and whatnot. So what you know, I, I need you to come out here and, and deliver all those stuff. So what, what are we talking about in the story? What, what, what uh, you know, like, I guess, volume or pound-wise or what? I mean, what, what can you deliver in a, in a uh, story? Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and also I'll like also say in broad generalities, you know, we are an air cargo company. So, you know, there's no one, you know, size-fits-all package or container that's right for everyone. A lot of our work mm-hmm. to do is find the right solution for the right customers. Um, uh, we make some containers ourselves. Currently, our largest one uh, can hold 30 gallons of volume, uh, about 30 to 50 pounds of things, you know, kind of depending. Um, and then the real thing is it's just however many you can fit in the airplane is however many you can ship. And that's the 208. It's about 14 of these systems. Uh, but we also use other people's hardware or evaluating some other people's hardware uh, more traditional military systems, but combined with the software, we get the reliability up. Uh, in that case, it can go up to 10,000 pounds. Really, the, the constraint in aviation is uh, just two simple ones. It's your door size, so what can you physically fit out your door? 
from a practical standpoint, you know, in the station weight. And then uh, B, it's the volume of airplanes, kind of by design, uh, just the way things are. You almost always run out of volume before you run out of weight. So, you know, uh, it's, you know, how many cubic feet can you hold? A 208 holds about 350, 400, depending on the configuration uh, of cubic feet. So it's what you do with that space um, up into larger aircraft. So I think those are the, the primary ones. And the reason I bring this up is it, it affords us some flexibility, you know, saying, oh, well, you can't do that with a, a 208. Well, great. You can go up to a, a cost of 212, 6,000 cubic feet. You know, you can go up to a Dash 8. You know, you can find bigger aircraft. Um, you know, the day we're flying C-130s, it would be exciting to me. Uh, but, um, you know, you can find a bigger aircraft until that's probably not the limiting factor uh, for, for a given delivery. So, right. so I think that's really it. It's, and, and, you know, what I tell customers, potential customers is, hey, conceptually, think of us as a pallet. You know, yep, we're going to have constraints of how we build this pallet or how we pack this box. But at the end of the day, that's really what it is. It's just a, a, a very fancy pallet that, that lands out the airplane. Interesting. All right. Well, I like how you kind of encapsulated that. And I think that's how yeah. I will. Uh, and, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, and, and sorry, if I could just quickly talk, you know, uh, don't want to throw stones at the drone delivery business, but if there's one idea I can kind of put, you know, you mentioned it. You know, if you think about it from an infrastructure standpoint, you know, power, uh, you know, uh, data signal, reliable data signal, reliable infrastructure in every place along the way, you know, unmanned traffic management. If you think of all these infrastructure challenges, uh, you know, uh, a lot of what we're doing is saying, hey, you know, a given aircraft, we can already go anywhere in the world and find us at, find us at the 208 or similar aircraft. The airport already exists. The airplane's already there. It can fly inland without any, you know, other infrastructure it needs, it can go do an airdrop at a rural hospital, turn around and come back, and the total infrastructure in, uh, investment by all parties was zero. The only thing you bought was the container. Um, so that just gives us a lot more flexibility in spinning up in locations at a, a much easier, you know, start cost. Yeah, well, you, uh, you, you hit that. I mean, there's already regulations for this. There's already... Um, procedures and standards and all the rest of that. And yeah, it's one of the things uh, <laughs> drone community is the, uh, you know, we're still on the waivers, the favor waivers, as I like to call them, and that will never scale, you know. Um, so whatever, uh, it's exciting and it sounds good and all the rest of that, but that, you know, that the community, I think, is uh, well-intentioned but a uh, little blissfully ignorant of everything that's going to be in that. And there was even, uh, you know, you touched on that UTM thing, building a whole new air traffic control system that's going to dovetail with the existing air traffic control system. Uh, it's going to be hard to do. <laughs> I don't want to go too far down that road because everybody's bring everybody right on down to Chinatown, and we don't want to do that. So... This is all interesting. Actually, I, I just thought of another guy who was contacted from another fellow in Africa, and they're trying to do uh, deliveries with aircraft. And I think I'm going to actually send him your contact information because they were like, well, we want to do drone delivery and <laughs> throw out these crazy numbers for uh, operating for the day. And uh, I think I was like, eh, I think you, you're missing a zero there, buddy. Is that a typo? <laughs> yeah. Because I was, I was yeah. going to move all that cargo in a day with the system. 
you know what I'm saying? I mean, quick back of the napkin thing. I'm sure you have that too. Like if I call Jeff and it's like, hey, you know, I want to deliver deliver uh, cheese doodles to the Pepsi and because uh, it's for cheese doodle day or whatever, you know. On that, yeah. it's going to be X amount of dollars. What? That's crazy. I, my kid could drive there in a truck. I mean, you, do, do you have people call you up for crazy stuff or most people serious? Yeah, some of them I can talk about, some of them I can't. Um, <laughs> I, the, the craziest one was a Super Bowl commercial, which uh, unfortunately we didn't get to do. Um, uh, it was a stunt for the Super Bowl. But, um, you know, uh, but covering, you know, I say more practical stuff here on, on the business side, you know, one anecdote I can give you uh, without saying names, but it was, it was overseas uh, in Africa, um, basically a hospital network, you know, rural hospital clinical, uh, clinic network, about nine locations. Um, they wanted to do deliveries here. Of course, the ground logistics were hard to impossible. Um, it was 26 pallets a month. And if you start trying to break down, you know, 26 pallets worth of goods, several thousand pounds, um, and you're trying to do that, you know, five, ten pounds at a time, that's that's really challenging. You know, Cessna 208 has three pallet stations. All of a sudden, that's you know, uh, uh, what you know, seven, eight, nine flights becomes a very achievable number. Um, so you know, just putting it in scale here from a cost standpoint, yeah, that's. That's where a lot comes of is you know in cargo and in logistics economy of scale is you know the name of the game. So being able to get more on a given airframe, uh, you know you have the same number of people operating it, but now you're delivering ten thousand pounds instead of ten. Right, right. So yeah, I'm sure there's a you know somebody comes to you with something like right off the back of the napkin, right. like well you know that's so interesting. Yeah. All right, well you know we got the. Uh, Peek behind the curtain of, of logistics and uh, some other let's say applications for that, and I appreciate it. I'm glad we had you back on. I, I think your your uh, let's say product service is something that is actually uh, makes sense, and uh, I'm glad to hear that you're able to get back to innovating. So I'm reading uh, this history of uh, some NASA history, and the guy was the engineer, and they were working on stuff in the space shuttle, and he's like, the business end just was, it was, and I'm paraphrasing, just, it, it just was great. I'm doing all the business stuff and everything else, and I, and I, I, I couldn't even innovate. I mean, is that what, is that what happened yeah. to you? Is that where you were like, oh, man, i got to go hit the QuickBooks again instead of uh, think about what I want to do here in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what happened to you, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, um, you know, I think uh, you know, uh, running a business is great and everything. Um, it, it's wonderful and, and creating a business, but it's a lot. It's a it's a lot of work, and you can't do it alone. You know, I think it's the greatest thing is to find people who complement your skill set and let you focus on what you're amazing at. And then the stuff that you're not good at, you know, I can be an accountant, but you don't want me as your accountant. I'll put that <laughs> Exactly. But that's, that's the, the beauty of being a small business person. <clears throat> you know, you're doing everything. i got to go empty the trash here. Anyway. All right, Joe. Well, it was good having you on. I was good getting the update. Thank you so much for the insight. Um, website one more time. Uh, it is uh, – 
www.gofarcast.com, F-A-R-C-A-S-T. It's like forecast, but with an A, it's because we're casting a net far and wide. I like that. All right, well, be sure and give us an update in the future. Thank you again for being on, and we'll see everyone next week. It's always a pleasure, Patrick. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.